welcome to the Iran podcast. I'm your host, Negar Mortazavi in Washington, D.C. In this episode, you hear another conversation about U.S.-Iran nuclear diplomacy happening in Vienna and the negotiations and also the future of the nuclear deal considering opposition in the U.S. from the U.S. Congress and also some pressure from the Iranian parliament and domestic politics in Tehran. This conversation was hosted on Twitter Spaces online, live. It was moderated by Saeed Azimi, and I was joined in conversation by Tom O'Connor. Hello and welcome to another Twitter Spaces sessions. Uh, this is Saeed Azimi, political journalist and director of social media from Tehran Times. And um, I have the pleasure and honor to welcome all of you here, especially Mr. Tom O'Connor, Syrian foreign policy writer at Newsweek. Um, Hello, Tom. Do you have my voice? I'm well. Thank you very much. I've been up all night uh, attending a, a virtual conference with the Valdai Discussion Club uh, on, on Middle East security, actually, and I've been doing a bunch of media appearances. So a little tired, uh, trying also to follow the situation in Ukraine. But obviously, today is about JCPOA and Iran. And uh, I, there is, you know, there does seem to be some positive developments that we'll be discussing. So I'm excited to get into it. Okay, so we will begin the discussion shortly, but uh, we're waiting for Nagar uh, to arrive as well. And uh, meanwhile, uh, how's everything, Tom? Uh, have you been following the uh, JCPOA recently? Because I know you're very occupied with the Ukraine developments. Yes, yeah, certainly. No, I, I have been following JCPOA. It's something, obviously, that's still near and dear to me as far as a topic of coverage. And, uh, you know, it, like, like, like we've discussed in past sessions, there's, there's always a difference between the, the public messaging and the actual progress of the talks. But it does seem to be, for, the, for probably one of the first times, at least in our discussions, that we can talk about um, some, some real indicators of progress here. Um, so I am excited to get into it. I, I, think, I think that, um, I mean, I mean, I'm also very much excited to hear what Nigar says. I hope that we can hear from some um, some some, some uh, people who want, may want to ask questions as well. Um, yes, of course. Uh, now we have more concrete evidence, more than ever, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, no, that, that, that's my indication as well. Um, you know, of course, there, there does seem to be uh, some sticking points as well, but based on the language that's out there, uh, it doesn't seem, to, it seems to be that they're, they're, these, these, these obstacles are surmountable um, in the interest of achieving a deal. Uh, yes, so how's everything in U.S. media? Well, U.S. media... Yeah, I, I think that there still is a, a quite a wide segment of uh, commentators here who see the nuclear deal as, as who saw the nuclear deal, let's say, as a positive development and saw the U.S. exit as as, as, a, as a very negative thing. Of course, uh, there still is the issue that we had discussed before about um, conservatives in the U.S. Um, who are still skeptical of the deal and who are threatening to 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 basically scrap it once again if a Republican comes into office. And that is a lingering threat that I'm sure we'll discuss today. Um, other than that, though, it, it does seem to be that the majority of, of commentators in the U.S. still support uh, entering into the JCPOA. Uh, very well, Tom. Um, it is my honor and my pleasure to welcome Ms. Nagar Murtazavi, senior um, journalist and editor and uh, creator of the Iran podcast. Am I right, Ms. Murtazavi? Hi, yes, correct. I'm the host and editor of the Iran podcast. Hello to both of you. Hi, Tom. Great to be here. Hi, Nigar. 
Always glad. It was a pleasure to see you or, or speak with you. <laughs> Same here. Sorry, I missed the beginning of Tom's comments, but um, happy to join the conversation if you have any questions. Oh, yes. yes, yes. I, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, okay, sure. Uh, let's get into it right uh, right from the start. Um, Ms. Mortazavi uh, and Tom, this question is actually directed at both of you. How did you receive the uh, letter that the 250 representatives of the parliament wrote to Iranian president yesterday. Uh, Tom, uh, I'm directing this specifically to you regarding the United States media and how was it received there? Was it a positive signal or a negative signal? And Ms. Mortazavi, what is your analysis regarding this? Um, um, Digar, you, you want to start or I can start? I, I, can, I can start with that. Sorry, go um, ahead, go ahead. Okay, awesome. Yeah, yeah. I'll I'll try to make it brief. Uh, I think that the the issue here in the in the U.S. is that there there unless you're speaking to certain foreign policy experts and specifically even people who deal um, specifically with Iran or the Middle East, perhaps there isn't a great understanding of the inner workings of Iran's political system and the 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 sort of the, the nuances of how the the political system works as far as who is in control of what and the 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 the, the that it's not a monolith so of course there are people just as i said earlier and Igor, i only spoke very briefly just before you jumped in i had just said that there are conservatives here in the u.s who remain skeptical especially in iran given the experience they've had over the past now it's it's going to be seven years um the past almost four years or so since the, since the U.S. exit of the JCPOA, there is skepticism and there is, is a demand for even stronger assurances that obviously were absent um, in the first iteration of this deal um, back in 2015. And I think that the, the 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 letter that came out isn't a bad sign whatsoever. I think it's just, it, it's part of it's part of just the actual reality we live in. And I think that. In, it can be read sure that people still have lingering issues with with the with the JCPOA in Iran, but could also be read as that there, essentially there is a understanding that this is still part of Iran's uh, desire is for the U.S. to return to it. And even more importantly, we know that it's part of President Raisi's platform. And, and perhaps even and, and even more importantly, it's part of uh, uh, Supreme Leader Khamenei's uh, platform as well. It's been endorsed by him. And so as long as those two things remain in play, which clearly they are, then I think that the path towards accepting the, the uh, and, and, and a, a, a resolution in this case um, is, is attainable. So I I think that, sure, the U.S. media perhaps were focusing on some of the more negative aspects of the letter, um, but I, I, I wouldn't get too much, I wouldn't get too lost in that. And, and Igor, feel free to please uh, expound on that. Sure. So um, I agree with Tom. I just want to lay out the dynamics here. And the most important is that the current Iranian political structure, mainly the administration and the parliament, are from the bigger umbrella of the same faction. So the parliament is controlled by conservative. And the administration or the president is also a conservative. And this is a very different dynamic than what we see here in Washington, which is the Republicans of the opposing faction going against Joe Biden's diplomatic outreach with Iran. Um, so the Republican aim really is to sabotage. And I would 
uh, draw the comparison to the era of Hassan Rouhani, the previous Iranian president, the moderate, when the conservative parliament um, would try to influence his diplomatic outreach to the U.S. Right now, I think it's more of a um, trying of an attempt to reinforce the administration's hand in the in the negotiations, and also. Uh, there's a lot of domestic politics involved, I think, on both sides, both for the Republicans, because the Republicans also don't really have the number of votes or the the political power to stop a revival of the nuclear deal. It's within uh, the full authority of the U.S. president, President Biden. He could have re- revived. He could have rejoined the JCPOA uh, on the first day he came into office. He can do it now, he, today. He can do it tomorrow. So. Um, the Republicans don't have the number of votes, but I think there's there's a lot of domestic politics signaling on both sides. And also, as Tom uh, correctly mentioned, there's also foreign policy types in both capitals, Tehran and Washington, who very closely monitor and watch the other um, sides' politics. So it's sort of a signal to them as well. But in the grand scheme of things in the big picture, I don't think the Republicans here and um, the parliament back in Tehran don't have much um, power to really stop this deal from happening. It really lies within the Biden administration and the Raisi administration's power. But I'm happy to expand more later if you want. Uh, Okay, so uh, Tom, do you have any comments on what uh, Ms. Mortazavi just said? I mean, I very much, I very much agree with with her characterization. I think that um, the 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 immediate threat here from the Republicans isn't that they'd be able to stop the uh, a, a, a U.S. return to the JCPOA. The threat is a is a long term one, and the JCPOA JCPOA is structured as as as, as such, and it's, and the benefits of it for Iran are as such that it really needs to be somewhat of a long term deal because if we're talking about investment coming in from Europe, uh, from areas, from countries or, or anywhere around the world, really, um, that would fear U.S. sanctions. Um, some of the projects and the, the broader strategies that would that would take place would take years to do so. And if there's concern that the Biden administration might be a one term administration and that the Democrats might have a weaker hand come the midterm elections, come, of course, the next presidential election, then there still may be hesitance to really give Iran the sort of benefits that it's that it's sort of that it's promised to the deal and the, and the way the deal works. So I think the threat is is in the long term, but it's but it does affect the, the current term because of the sort of the, obviously the way these things work when it comes to business strategies is looking forward. So will countries and will 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 big companies, multinational companies, flock to Iran um, in the, with the same enthusiasm they did back in 2015 and 2016? Well, I, I'm not sure, and there will have to be some sort of assurances um, if that's the case. So I think that's really the, the, the concerns I see. But I do very much think that we are on the road to seeing the JCPOA and, and the U.S. return to the JCPOA specifically. Um, yes, building on what you said uh, today, the Iranian foreign ministry spokesman uh, said that uh, the economic assurances and guarantees that Iran wants are being negotiated uh, very extensively. Um, so uh, I think the bigger picture here is that uh, Iran thinks what you just said, uh, that multinational companies are not likely to be uh, investing in Iran without, um, you know, strict assurances. Um, so 
uh, right now, Iran is seeking guarantees in um, different areas. Uh, but uh, how do you think the United States will be able to provide um, an assurance and a guarantee in the economic aspect of the JCPOA? Well, I mean, it's difficult because there's not really a, a, a sound mechanism for that. The U.S. can offer assurances to its own companies and to foreign ones, of course, that there no U.S. sanctions will be triggered. They can find creative ways perhaps to to um to 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 prevent future sanctions being implemented but it's because this is really within the executive powers and there doesn't seem at least right now and of course we, we will see how this thing progresses there could be an effort but we don't we don't see right now a, a serious effort to bring this to congress that could be the case um i haven't seen much there and please correct me if i'm wrong on that point um because of the because because, because the u.s is struggling right now to even well the Biden administration i should say is struggling right now to even implement its own domestic agenda in Congress. So something like this would surely be met with even more serious opposition, um, perhaps even within the Democratic Party, just because of domestic political reasons purely. Um, so I think that those assurances are hard to give. I'm very interested to know how what assurances the U.S. is, is, is negotiating right now and what it can offer, because it's not something that the U.S. Has, and U.S. officials are speaking very much about. Um, they're talking about the now, the present, but the future, of course, course, is what Iran is most concerned about when it comes to wanting to w wanting to really see this uh, deal come back into action. And of course, as I said before, enjoy the benefits that it's been promised under this deal. Yes, Ms. Mortaz, have anything to add regarding what Tom said and my question? Sure. Um, it's so we we're talking about assurances and guarantees there's a political side to it which those who know the u.s political structure obviously understand that it's essentially impossible for the u.s president to promise anything on behalf of of a future president especially if it's someone from the opposing party and we really saw the extent of of that happening under the trump administration with them pulling out of a diversity of international agreements um, made by their predecessors. So um, that's the political side. But then when it comes to the economic side, as Tom was saying, I think we obviously don't know the very details of, of the talks, but um, there are creative ways um, and there have been suggestions on how the U.S. can reassure without really promising anything into the future of, of the next administration uh, in the form of comfort letters from the U.S. Treasury Department, the Office of uh, foreign national control and assurances basically to uh, especially European and, and large Asian companies and banks and investors because that's another issue for Iran and I think this is something that the Iranians were caught off guard after the JCPOA there was this assumption that the doors would essentially open um, the floodgates really and there will be investments pouring in and trade and everything and they realized that that wasn't the case and the shadow of the threat of U.S. sanctions and the future of U.S. politics very much impacted especially Iran's trade and long-term investment with Europe. So I think the Iranians are more clear-eyed this time as, as far as how much the sanctions relief can bring them and that's why they're also seeking um, not alternatives, but additions um, to to basically attach or add to the agreement to at least get better economic benefits. There's also the issue of um, blocked assets. Billions of dollars of Iranian money is frozen 
um, in foreign banks. Um, and when, when that money returns, that can also give a major economic boost to the country. So overall, I think considering the shortcomings of the deal uh, from the Iranian viewpoint, uh, the final calculation is that this is still in Iran's benefit economically one way or another. And um, whatever creative way um, the diplomats agree on, come up with, I'm sure they're already discussing the creative ways, but whatever they agree on finally uh, will essentially be to Iran's benefit. Uh, okay, so uh, regarding um, what you said, Ms. Mortazavi, Iranian Foreign Minister Hussein Amir Abdullahian recently said that uh, the Washington can issue a political statement and a concurrent statement um, confirming uh, the JCPOA agreement, confirming a return to the agreement, uh, and thus uh, confirming their obligations to the deal. Um, Tom, uh, does such thing is, is such thing possible in the United States political system? I'm sorry, you mean you're talking about the assurances specifically? Um, yes, uh, the, the Iranian foreign minister was actually saying that uh, the United States can commit uh, to the deal by issuing a political statement. So would that yeah, be an assurance yeah, yeah. In, yeah, in, yeah. in your point of view? Yeah, I mean, I mean, certainly, I mean, as, 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 as Nigar had said, you know, when it comes to politic, the political side of this, absolutely, the U.S. can can craft language very, very creatively to um, to to sell this both to Iran and the domestic population. Um, I, I think especially now it's actually a very good time because of the amount of attention being paid to uh, the Ukraine-Russia stuff. Uh, I, I think that many people are, are you know, it, it's when it comes to diplomatic stuff like this, it's best conducted usually in the dark. And I think that a lot of the the past wrangling over this had been because of just there was so much focus on the public messaging. But I think that now with, with this really what it, it seems to be in, in the final hours or days or so, um, there there is room to sort of be able to 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 expand that sort of um, that sort of political capital and spend it right now. Um, I think that when it comes to what actually could be done, again, there would have to be it would have to be creative economically. But I think certainly there would be an effort to ensure that there is less Iranian funds in U.S. Uh, systems specifically, so that they're not they're not they're not frozen automatically. There would have to be somehow, perhaps whether it's Europe, Russia, or China, um, ways to to keep those sort of assets away from the U.S., which is kind of an ironic place for the U.S. to be in to be <laughs> keeping that stuff away from itself. But I mean, that's just unfortunately the reality of this, and I think that the Biden administration is aware of that. So um, I think yes, if if you're asking about the political statement specifically, yes, I think. I think that the Biden administration would be able to provide that. But that's, of course, just just a, a small part of what of the actual assurances that Iran would be looking for. But I, as Nigar said, and I agree with, I think that certainly uh, Iran has 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 calculated that this is within its interest and that there is something to be attained that that would be beneficial for for for, for Iran itself. Can I just add a quick point? Yes, um, please. Because we we hear from U.S. pundits, um, you know, that and I also made that point, there's absolutely no way in the U.S. political structure that uh, an American president can guarantee the future within another president. But, you know, that's really nothing to be proud of. You're essentially saying, I'm going to sign something and agree and shake hands, but and and pretend like this is long term, but be aware <laughs> that I don't have the power to make that happen. So I think nevertheless, 
it it was still smart on Iran's side, or at least sensible, not smart, but sensible to to try to push for that point and ask for something, regardless of what the U.S. political structure is. But then obviously we know the shortcomings and also the very political divisions in this country and how, again, going back to the Trump era, how that really turned out as far as the value of a U.S. signature or an, or an agreement. And then there's also another point. Uh, we mentioned the uh, Congress issue, and there's always questions or talks about turning this into a treaty or why didn't the Obama administration turn this into a treaty, meaning having it um, basically approved by the U.S. Senate. Well, first of all, the Obama administration didn't have that kind of vote back then. Uh, the Biden administration doesn't have that kind of vote right now, the two-thirds of the U.S. Senate to turn this into a treaty. And even if they did, that's also nothing um, permanent. Again, even a treaty can also be overturned with the same amount of votes. But then because of the of the nature of, of U.S. relations with Iran, there just wasn't that kind of support in the U.S. Congress back then under the Obama years and now under the, the Biden administration. So I just wanted to um, elaborate on those, those two points. Um, excellent, exactly. Um, so the Iranians, are uh, in the letter that the 250 representatives of the parliament wrote to the uh, Iranian president, um, they've, they actually asked for strict assurances, but what was more interesting in that regard was um, that sanctions under Katsa, U-Turn, and ISA would be removed on Iran. Um, so do you see this as a deal breaker? Which one? Um, that the sanctions under Katsa, ISA, and U-Turn uh, uh, would be removed on Iran. Tom, you want to go first? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's difficult to say what's a deal breaker or not, because it does. At least, and of course, we're just talking about the indications. We, as, as we've said many times, we don't have a, 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 a view of the very inner workings. We can speak to people who are involved, but um, it does seem to be that there has been a, a, an understanding from both sides that there is a deal here. Um, I, it, it's, it's, of course, now when we get away from just the nuclear sanctions themselves and talk about some of the other sanctions the Trump administration had put into place very deliberately to sabotage this, um, it, I mean, it, it seems to me that it's, it's it would be possible for the Biden administration to make some moves there because it's even though they're not directly related to the nuclear deal, the effort from the Trump administration was so transparent to do so. And, 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 and essentially, if it's deemed to be within U.S. national interest to to have to have gotten this deal back in 2015, and we see a lot of the same people in the Biden administration, saw so the Obama administration, I think that that might be a prevailing thought within the administration itself. Of course, it's another thing to have to sell that to uh, the domestic population. Population, but I think by and large, um, there is poss there is possibility for movement there. Now, whether that movement it has been has been agreed to or not, you know, that's another story. And I, again, I'm of course, as we all are, very interested to see what it, what the final iteration of this deal looks like when it comes out and when the U.S. does announce if it if it does re announce its return to the deal. What sort of other um, what sort of other things have been have been added or or left out of it? And of course, there's a, there's a, there's a number of different things. Some of the, the the stuff that you just mentioned, um, the there, there's been talk of the uh, the listing of a designation of the IRGC as a terrorist organization. Can that be withdrawn? Um, I think I do think there's movement on a lot of these things. I, whether the Biden administration will choose or has chosen to do so, I think that that remains to be seen.
Yes, Miss Mutazavi, do you want to go ahead? Um, yeah, so again, going back to the big picture, I think we're at a point of of posturing, and I don't really see um, any deal breakers at this point. I mean, I'm, I'm usually on the hopeful side, but this just feels very much like the atmosphere before the finalization of the deal in 2015. And... Um, I think one way or another, the gaps are going to be bridged. And of course, both sides are going to push for the maximum of what they can get, that little extra bit at the very end. And I agree with Tom. I mean, we're all very much eager to see the final text and the outcome and what's agreed on. They're holding the cards very close to their chest. But interestingly, just yesterday, I think over the weekend, the Russian diplomat who who has really become the, the online chronicler of of the negotiations um the russian negotiator uh, mr ulyanov he tweeted very explicitly that um the final agreement is just essentially going to look very much like the jcpoa so um you know all of this again is big picture talks but as Tom mentioned, the IRGC designation, the Revolutionary Guards designation has been a very important sticking point for Iran. On the U.S. side also, the Biden administration has had this demand, and this was even during the campaign era of, of uh, candidate Biden, uh, to for Iran to agree to follow on talks. So to not have the revival of the JCPOA as the end of diplomacy, but to basically get a sort of commitment or um, in whatever form it's going to be from the Iranians to agree to discuss other issues beyond the nuclear program, which is um, which would go beyond the JCPOA. So, you know, there's there's these issues on both sides and also the sequences of what to do, what sanctions to lift. There's designations that from the U.S. perspective are you know, categorized under terrorism, human rights. There was the designation of Iran's supreme leader, the far, previous foreign minister. So there's there's some political issues to be discussed on sanctions. There's also real economic um, questions, especially with the designation of the IRGC, because the IRGC is essentially involved in most of Iran's economy. And then um, there's also what the U.S. is trying to get in return on the other side. So it's not just demands from the Iranian side, but also from the U.S. side. And I guess I'm hoping we're going to find out um, sooner than later, maybe in a matter of days. Um, uh, yes. So uh, back in like back a few days ago, Reuters actually said that it has obtained um, parts of an, uh, parts of a 20 page agreement, um, which is uh, likely to be the draft that uh, all parties will sign and um, under that uh, there was a mention of the prisoner swap between the United States and uh, Iran and uh, the fact that Iran would reduce its nuclear uh, program to 5% and then to the 3.67% agreed in the 2015 deal. Um, um, Yesterday the spokesman for the national security and foreign policy of the Iranian parliament gave an interview saying that we have no obligations um, reducing the nuclear program. Uh, we are ready to address the IAEA's concern in that regard. Uh, but what is what has remained uh, is the economic benefit that Iran will receive from the, this deal. Um, so to me, it strikes as that Iran has no problem reducing its nuclear commitments. The main issue is basically um, assurances, especially on the economic 
field and aspect of the deal. Um, what do you think in this regard? Do you think that Iran has, specifically, do you think Iran has any problem reducing its nuclear program? And um, do you think that what Reuters leaked a few days ago uh, is true? Uh, the Iranian authorities um, uh, actually refute, uh, refuted this um, report, saying that this was just a fact sheet uh, from the United States side. What do you think of that? Well, I mean, if I, I'll just I'll start right there. I think that Iran has I don't think it will have a, a major issue, of course. And this is just my analysis, but I, I don't see a major issue in Iran wanting to reduce its nuclear production. I, I think that 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 really is at the heart of this deal. I think that Iran didn't have an issue with that in 2015 and doesn't have an issue with that now. Um, I know that there's been some concerns from the U.S. side that Iran might be able to that might, that might have a, a, a shorter breakout time if it ever did pursue pursue some sort of nuclear weapon. But I mean, even that is just is just that's just been that's been the casualty of, of leaving the nuclear deal in the first place. And I think that there's a broad understanding of that um, within the administration right now, within the U.S. side and, and even beyond that to a lot of experts who follow this. And, and, and even Israel, to some extent, seems to be somewhat resigned to this deal. I think that certainly they 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 are complaining about it and they, they've issued criticism. But because they were more included in this process versus back in 2015 it does seem to be that they um they they they're 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 expecting this to happen and sure they might protest here or there but it seems that they've virtually signed signed on one way or another um i think that again going back to iran's nuclear program itself i think that yes that's at the center of this and any um any things that any things that Iran might have, have advanced in that time is just is certainly just a natural development when there is no restrictions on it, essentially, because um, Iran has, of course, chosen to uh, uh, degrade or, or to walk away from some of those commitments as a response to the, the West, uh, fail, the West failed to, failure to um, fulfill its own obligations when it came to sanctions, uh, when it came to sorry trade because of U.S. sanctions. Um, Tom, you didn't answer my uh, second question. Do you think that what Reuters leaked uh, is uh, the draft or just a fact sheet from the United States side? Oh yeah, sorry. Um, yeah, I, I think that you know we we've throughout this entire experience, I think that we've uh, seen back and forth a number of. Uh, preemptive agreements or agreements in principle, uh, certain things. And yeah, it's difficult to say. I mean, the one thing that the U.S. and Iran have both said throughout this in, in, in separately, but of course, to the same effect, is that nothing is agreed until it's agreed. So sure, I mean, maybe this could be the closest thing we've seen to the final agreement, but I, I really, I, I wouldn't hold it too much to, uh, you know, account. I, I, would, I would look at it and I'm interested to see because because I think it's probably representative of what um, what what the direction that's it's, it's going in, and whether that's something that's been presented by the U.S. or not could certainly also influence that. But I, I wouldn't, uh, you know, I, I think I think it, it's interesting, but I, I wouldn't take that as as Bible yet. I wouldn't take that as as you know, canon as it, as if that's that's a that is a final agreement or even potentially a a, a penultimate agreement or a penultimate draft. Miss um, Mortazavi, what do you think? Um, yes, I agree with Tom. Um, I think, you know, it's probably uh, something closer to a fact sheet. And also it's very important who drafted that fact sheet and provided it to Reuters because each side obviously have their own demands or emphasizes their own demands. And we've seen this movie before. Again, this is very much similar to the atmosphere um, before 
before the actual agreement in 2015. And at some point, the diplomats start to negotiate through the media and through the public space. So, you know, we have to take all of that with a grain of salt. Back in 2015, um, the, the public uh, negotiation side of it got to the point that even the Iranian foreign minister waving from a balcony on Hotel Kuborg would be interpreted as one way or another. Um, obviously, this time we don't have as much that because the foreign ministers and the U.S. Secretary of State are not involved. So the negotiations are not as high level. And also the Iranian and American side are not meeting directly. So um, a lot of the fun and excitement of the previous time is lacking. But again, it's very similar um, to what has been happening on that side. And again, I've said this before in many interviews, but I think the European Union probably because the Russians are putting out um, their own information, the Iranians are trying to negotiate through their own media, the Americans constantly brief U.S. media. But I think the European Union, probably among all, um, I see them as the most uh, neutral or close to neutral. Of course, they're in Europe, but also uh, they've been facilitators and very, very helpful in in um, making the 2015 deal possible and now also in trying to bring the two sides together. They're, they're literally the ones that are shuffling between um, the Iranians and the Americans in their indirect talk. So I take their statements as closer to a neutral observation of the process. Um, your point of view is not actually agreed on in Iran. Uh, many conservative uh, representatives of the Iranian parliament have given interviews saying that um, the United States in their messages uh, through intermediaries has um, said that the EU diplomats are not doing what is necessary to convey the message from Iran to the United States and vice versa. Um, so do you think this is just merely a claim from some Iranian representatives uh, to actually justify the indirect negotiations between Iran and the United States? Or do you think this is true? Because uh, you seem to be very optimistic of the EU role and specifically Enrique Mora's role in that regard. Well, there's, I mean, I want to clarify that I was talking about public statements coming from the European Union officials, Joseph Borrell, Enrique Mora, and also with the caveat that obviously they're Europeans, so the E3 and the European Union essentially are in the same continent and on the same boat. But compared to the other sides, um, I was saying their public statements have been closer to what we see as more neutral and professional in this whole process, because I see all the other sides trying to negotiate through the media, through the public um, sphere. And we've seen it again in the past in 2015, and we're seeing it now. But as far as what's happening in the in the actual negotiating room, I guess that was your question about the European diplomats, the EU diplomats going back and forth. You know, at the end of the day, they're, they're Western diplomats, they're US's closest allies. So obviously their 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 form of relationship with the United States is very different than with Iran. And this is also Iran's fault. I just want to emphasize that for not willing to negotiate directly with the U.S. I know the U.S. is not part of the JCPOA, and so they can't sit at the framework or the agreed basically negotiating table with all the parties, the P5 plus one, which is now P4 plus one. But um, nevertheless, if you're trying to make an agreement, it's always, always um, better to have direct negotiations and direct talks and 
that's just something that's lacking. The U.S. side has been willing to meet with the Iranians outside of the framework of the JCPOA, but um, Iran's refusal to meet directly with the with the American side um, has essentially brought this third party. And so to to create that situation and then complain about it, I also find a little bit ironic. And I'd just like to, to add on that as far as the, Europe's role in this. Um, I, I think it's actually quite central to this entire process as well. I think that the European Union obviously played a, a, a and, and you know the, the E3 played a massive role back in 2015, but in some ways it's even more important now because of the fact that it was the U.S. that left the deal, which was unanimously opposed by the other parties, including European, the European countries, which are U.S. allies. So... Europe will not only play has not only played a big part in keeping this process alive, um, even leading even lead up to to the talks and, and during the Trump administration, just keeping a JCPOA in general, even if the benefits weren't there, but just in the hopes that there there would be a, a, a return to some sort of negotiations, which of course ultimately there was, and hopefully if if you know for people who of course want to see this deal happen, that there will be a deal. Of course, um, it's going to Europe's going to play a central role in in, in providing or facilitating. I should say those assurances, insofar as as they can be assured, um, of of a continued uh, benefit to Iran. This deal, even if a, a future U.S. administration uh, uh, walks back from this, because I don't see Europe uh, wanting to break those bonds again because of the U.S. I think that there certainly was a feeling of betrayal from that. There was a feeling that the U.S. There was certainly a, a, a massive loss of geopolitical capital on the U.S.'s part, and I think that Europe uh, really takes. Took, took that into account. So Europe's going to play a, a central role in the future of this deal. Um, and and I, I very much agree with Nigar in that sense. Uh, I think that even though, of course, uh, the when it comes to geopolitical orientation, of course, these countries are far closer to the U.S., but it's almost, it's almost more surprising how much they've been willing to break with them over the past few years during the Trump administration. And of course, it'll, it'll, be, it'll remain to be seen what their, what their lasting commitment to this is in the event that the U.S., uh, you know, a, a Republican uh, government comes in or even if, or even any future government comes in to want to walk away from this deal once again, I think that the Europeans are taking that into account. Uh, excellent. Uh, so, Tom, uh, there is one more question that I had from you. Um, like, uh, I think two weeks ago, Robert Malley said that one of the prerequisites of an agreement would be the release of Iranian uh, American prisoners in Iran. And then Ned Price corrected him, saying that, no, this was never a precondition on the U.S. side. Uh, so do you think there was a miscalculation from the U.S. negotiating team? Um, and uh, do you think this is related to Richard Nephew leaving the team, Richard Nephew and Arianta Abutabai leaving the negotiating team? Well, it's difficult for me to speak to to the personal motivations of of, of people leaving the team or not. I know it's, it's certainly a notable development, so it's it, it's certainly a fair question. Uh, I, there's probably little I could add to that statement, but I can speak to I think my read at least on the 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 connection between the the prisoner releases. Um, I certainly I, I I could almost say for certain that the JCPOA deal itself will have no language whatsoever, and it probably it won't even be the same press conference or anything. 
um, to do with any sort of prisoner uh, releases or swaps or anything. Now, that's not to say that this isn't a process that's influenced by JCPOA progress. Um, it would not surprise me if the JCPOA is reached and announced that shortly after we saw some major progress on uh, sort of the, the prisoner negotiations. Now, whether <laughs> whether you you know whether that was directly a cause of that you know a cause a causal relationship. Of course, I think that that's something that will probably be um, kept kept to the diplomats themselves because of, of many reasons, and then the same reasons that, of course, you're seeing a different messaging coming out of both sides uh, in their public statements, and it's a lot to do with posturing, as Nigar called it, which is exactly correct. Um, uh, I think that there is hope for for progress there. Um, Iran has been open in saying that they'd be open to those sort of talks. Of course, not directly related to the JCPOA, but you know, this is a this is an opportunity to get a lot of things done when you actually sit at the table. Of course, in this case, it is a bit more difficult because they're not talk speaking directly, but I do emphasize they are speaking one way or another. So I think that there's certainly opportunity for that to also um, um, there, there, there be some sort of resolution there. Miss um, Murtazavi. Um, yes, I also I agree with Tom. I don't think we're going to see anything in the JCPOA revival as far as a prisoner swap. But I really do hope the prisoner swap happens. Again, it's something that happened parallel or on the sidelines of the JCPOA. The negotiations were separate, in fact, secret, but it happened at the same time. And it's just something that I think both sides see very much connected to the JCPOA revival, but also try to you know, orient their public messaging to keep them separate. And I think the talks have been separate. Um, the Qataris um, have been trying to mediate when it comes to that issue. And it's also the families, you know, the families have been very much um, anticipating the the release of their loved ones. Um, and it's not just American prisoners. Siamak Namazi, Bagher Namazi, his father, Morat Tahbaz, who's American and British, um, and Emad Sharqi are the four Americans. And then there's also European prisoners and their fate is still um, unknown and, and it's still, we have to wait and see if that's going to be tied to the JCPOA. But there's Nazani Zaghari, um, who is essentially held um, as a hostage for an exchange for uh, an old tank that by uh, from the UK to Iran and the payment of that is also tied by the UK. I mean, the UK government has said that they've agreed to, to settle the debt, but that payment is also tied to US sanctions and then essentially to the JCPOA. So, um, you know, I'm, we're hoping that this prisoner swap or the release of prisoners uh, is also going something that's happening in parallel as Rob Malley has also signaled and talked about publicly in the Iranian side as well. And um, that we'll see this happen when the JCPO or the deal is agreed on. Um, okay, so um, do you think uh, Iran has objected this uh, very severely? Do you think that um, taking uh, the issues of the negotiation room to the public space and public media is a good strategy? Iran has time and again criticized um, the E3 and um, P4 plus one for uh, taking these issues outside of the negotiating room and discussing it with the press, calling it negotiating with the press. Uh, so do you think this has been an obstacle so far? Well, 
you know, again, I, I mentioned this before. Um, I'm interested to hear what Tom thinks, but this is just something that all the sides are doing. The Russians are doing it. The Iranians are doing it. The Americans and the Europeans, the E3 specifically. I haven't seen the EU do it as much. Again, going back to my original point, um, as far as them being the the most neutral party among the others, but um they're all doing it. And, you know, if they see benefit in negotiating through the press, through the public, they very much seize that opportunity. And if they want to clo- hold their cards close to their chest, they'll, they'll do that. So, you know, it's just something that diplomats and the public diplomacy team decide on. And it's not it's not something that you can stop one side from doing or another. I mean, th- take the Russian negotiator example, uh, person, for example, he's essentially nonstop tweeting (laughs) photos and information about the negotiations. So it's just something that has been happening and I think it's going to continue. And each side assesses their own benefit and how much information they leak or they provide or they allude to the press to reinforce their own position. Yeah. And just jumping on that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I just, I, I completely agree with that. I think that it's just, it, it's a tactic that's not unique whatsoever to not, not only no not only it's not unique to any party in this negotiation, it's not unique to any party in any negotiation. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's an age old tactic that's been used, um, of course, to reinforce positions to want to control the narrative most importantly. Um, and that, you know, it, it, it can be useful in some ways if, it's perceived just as that, especially if you're going to be trying to sell this to your own constituency at home. Um, if the other parties tend to understand that, and of course they'll publicly criticize and condemn it, so that's not what we said. But there's kind of a, 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 a usually some sort of gentleman's agreement that 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 kind of connotates that. Well, we know we have to do the same thing, and that that's just part of the the tactics. But I think it is in general it can be very unhelpful, especially if there isn't those sort of understandings. If parties still are are, are quite at odds then you do sort of run the risk of, of, of kind of stalling negotiations. And I think that back in, in, in the lead up to the deal in 2015, part of the advantage there was that, yes, of course, it was, you know, there were there were rumblings and there were there were rumors and there was stuff out there, but it was not anywhere near as public as it is today. And of course, that that's because of the, 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 the a, a return to an agreement, of course, suffers from the from the innate casualty that the agreement was already made before and something went wrong with in this case, it was clearly the U.S. just exiting. But even then, the U.S. now has to come back and, and not look like it's just uh, sort of returning and, and not getting anything out of it. It needs to make it look like this is a, a strategic decision that is getting a better deal in some ways, whether that's the case or not. And of course, Iran, too, needs to come back and say, well, you know, we already agreed to this before and you left it. And, you know, this is this has been this essential narrative of the JCPOA negotiations and why it's taken so long um, to to even get to this point and, and why there's probably we still a little room left ahead to move forward. But again, I, I do emphasize that things are, 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 are trending well. Uh, but as far as those, those, th- those sort of media tactics, the, uh, the leak that, that Reuters obtained is, is the latest example of that. And uh, that might not be the last one either. Um, yes, Can I add something be, yeah. about, Please. are we going By back to means. the breakout time discussion? Um, uh, yes, that was one of my points. Uh, yes, I, I wanted to touch on that. And then I wanted to touch on the Israeli delegation in Vienna. Please go ahead about the break time, breakout sure. time. Sure. Yeah, I, just, I wanted to make a point earlier when we talked about breakout time. And I think Tom explained it a little bit. But essentially, first of all, Trump 
administration's withdrawal from the deal is the main reason why we are where we are and we see the opposition to the negotiations and to the deal very much being centered around this shorter breakout time and Iran essentially accumulating or acquiring more knowledge and expertise and and for the U, just being um, the US side being enabled to to reduce or to bring this back to um, the deal that was agreed the breakout time basically to agree on a breakout time that was under the Obama administration but I also wanted to add um, this issue that breakout um, is essentially and I'm I'm now just reading a title from a piece by Paul Pillar, a former CIA analyst who very much focuses on this issue that breakout is just the wrong way to assess the nuclear deal with Iran. He's written about this back in 2014 when the Obama team was very much emphasizing on this breakout time and how the deal is going to limit Iran's breakout time and keep it to a certain amount of time. And now he has written about this again uh, recently and essentially arguing that this is more of a scientific term uh, for for the nuclear experts and um, it doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things um, but it's just something that politically the Obama administration really turned into a big talking point and now the Biden administration can't live up to that very specific talking point because essentially the breakout time has been reduced but basically it's the time as you all know uh, to produce enough material that can then potentially be used uh, to make a nuclear bomb, be it if the civilian program turns into or is transformed into a weapons program. And that's a long discussion there. This current CIA head has just recently reaffirmed that their analysis is that Iran hasn't made the calculation uh, to go for a nuclear weapons program and that the program remains civilian. But um, just wanted to add that point about breakout and John Terman, Professor John Terman at MIT also has emphasized on this issue that uh, this breakout time and the talk of breakout is more of a scientific issue and not really um, a, a key point when it comes to the bigger nuclear agreements with Iran. Um, yes, Tom, please, about the breakout time. Yeah, no, I, I think that, that that's that's very well put. I think that, um, you know, there's a lot of cliche terms that have been put out there. Um, um, breakout time, sunset clauses, uh, various uh, these these terms that keep coming up, which, which as Nigar just said, are scientific terms that, of course, were subject to scrutiny uh, and negotiations. But of course, that were that that were agreed upon by both sides. So I think it's difficult now to try to relitigate a lot of those things. Um, of course, with the caveat, as I said earlier, that there there has been some advances to Iran's nuclear program, but that's of course going back to the fact that it's that that's it's a direct result of a U.S. exit. So we get ourselves in circles here over things like that. But it seems to me, as I said before, that that's something that the U.S. has has, has come to accept at this point. I mean, the, Iran has said it doesn't want. To be nuclear weapon the the jcpoa will limit iran's ability to to get one if it ever did pursue, want to pursue one and that's kind of the basis of the agreement the the finite terms and and sort of the 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 hypotheticals of whether iran does this this is how much time it has it's i, I don't think it's really I, I think those nuances are lost in a lot of the public discourse especially in media i can say and even in some experts and some of them of course purposely doing that in order to to poison the uh the prospects of a an agreement. 
yes, excellent. So uh, my next question was about um, the presence of an Israeli delegation uh, in Vienna last week. Um, so how do you assess that? Well, I'll just I'll just say because I, I mentioned the Israelis earlier that I think that it's it's actually a positive development. I think that uh, as I had said, the the Israelis, of course, were some were were the some of the most opposed to the JCPOA, uh, the first iteration back in 2015, and they made those concerns very known, and that was I think it was very influential, and also the U.S. exit um, in 2018. Now I think this time around, there's been a concerted effort by the Biden administration to make the Israelis feel included in this, and I think they actually have been included in many ways when it comes to the various levels of talks they've had, of course, outside the framework of the JCPOA um, on, on a bilateral basis. Basis. Um, and I think that that has actually been helpful. I think that there's also, if you if you look at Israeli media, you've seen uh, many officials, uh, former officials mostly, kind of coming out and saying, well, you know what, things are worse now than they were before. And the JCPOA probably wasn't as bad as we thought it was. Um, if we thought it was bad, this is worse. And and what and, and the future without it will, will probably be even far worse. And I think that it's, it's, it's creating a, 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 an incredible strain on Israel. Of course, we know it's created a strain on Iran. It's created a strain on the entire region. Um, the lack of that deal and the these sort of geopolitical uh, rivalries and, and that have been inflamed because of it. I think that Israel, as I said, is, is still officially opposed to the JCPOA, um, the current state of it. They want to, you know, they want they want to oppose it. But at the same time, there it does seem to be somewhat of an acceptance that this is the case. And Israel, of course, will pursue its its own uh, its its own track on this. But I think that they feel that they have coordinated with the U.S. on this, and that they at least have had a voice in the room. Uh, yes, before Ms. Mortazavi jumps in, uh, I just uh, wanted to say that Ms., uh, Mr. Patrick Mintor, uh, the Guardian uh, diplomatic journalist, is here. Uh, I've sent you a request, Mr. Mintor, and uh, I understand that you have first-hand information from Vienna. So uh, we would be honored if you could join us as a speaker. And uh, it is my pleasure to announce uh, that Ms. Abedinia, uh, uh, a foreign policy analyst from Iran, is also with us. Ms. Um, Mortazavi, uh, I'm hearing your comments about um, what Tom said, uh, but I also have my own comments in that regard. Please go ahead. Sure, thanks. And hello to Patrick also from me. Um, I also see we have a robust audience. If you want to take questions from the audience, I'm very happy to answer them. I don't know about Tom, but... Yes, yes, of course. But um, I, I was reserving it for, for at the end of discussion. If okay, you don't mind. sure, sure, yes, sure. Um, when it comes to Israel, I... I think Tom mentioned that very clearly. Basically, two, I think, key differences, um, two important things have happened that are very different from the Obama era. One is that um, we don't have Bibi Netanyahu, Benjamin Netanyahu as the prime minister of Israel, somebody who uh, was so confident in his opposition to the diplomacy, to the deal that essentially claimed that he has more votes in the U.S. Congress than the president himself when it comes to Iran. He essentially got himself invited to the U.S. Congress uh, without an invitation from the U.S. president against all diplomatic protocols and uh, or norms. And he came and gave a speech against the deal in the U.S. Congress. We don't see that kind of opposition from Prime Minister Bennett. He's still new. He's been trying to repair um uh, or rejuvenate, uh, change uh, relations with the Biden administration. And we just don't see that kind of very public and confident 
uh, opposition. Nevertheless, Bibi Netanyahu didn't succeed in stopping the JCPOA back then. Um, but um, we also see the Biden administration sort of bringing the Israelis in a little different approach than the approach of the Obama administration, um, having very direct consultations and, and frequent consultations with them and also their presence in Vienna um, speaks to that different approach to sort of bring them in. Nevertheless, they haven't been able to fully um, get the endorsement or the support of the Israelis. But I think the form of opposition, at least the public uh, posturing is very different uh, than it was during the Obama Netanyahu standoff on the on the negotiations. And then, as Tom also mentioned, the second or even more important point is that the Israelis have now seen the Trump years. Bibi Netanyahu was the most instrumental person to push President Trump to pull out of the JCPOA, and he did. And there was this idea that that would somehow fix the problems or, or be an ultimate solution. And it turned out to just be worse, as Tom explained. And so we're now in a situation um, that the Biden administration is trying to repair something that Trump broke very much with responsibility shared with the previous Israeli prime minister. So I think we're hearing more and more from senior Israeli officials, some in the uh, Netanyahu, uh, former officials in the Netanyahu administration, that this deal was actually working and it was to the benefit of Israel, um, beneficial for Israel's security, and it essentially limited Iran's nuclear program um, and and uh, helped monitor to make sure it remains civilian. So I think these are the two different points, and of course the different approach that the Biden team has with the Israelis, bringing them more into the uh, circle than than before. So I don't think we're going to see that kind of opposition um, this time around from the Israelis. And then also when it comes to, to Arab countries, especially in the Persian Gulf era, uh, Saudi government, the Emiratis, we also see a different approach. And that also is not just the difference um, in, in strategy by the Biden team, but it's also a result of, of the current era we're in and the multiple events of the past, which is also a long discussion, but we're also seeing sort of public signaling from these Arab countries, the Arab monarchies, that they are more supportive of a revival of the deal. Um, okay, so the big question here uh, is that is uh, when you're negotiating with Iran, the United States specifically, when you're negotiating with Iran, is bringing Iran's biggest enemy to Vienna, a good strategy, or isn't it a deal breaker? Because unofficial reports said that the Iranian delegation threatened to leave the negotiating table. I mean, I, I think that I understand the concerns there, but the 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 reality of these sort of negotiations is is, is should should leave that sort of flexibility to make those sort of decisions. If if it's between Israel not showing up and then staging a more disruptive campaign, or perhaps even worse. Um, stoking more sort of dissent within the U.S. public itself, because obviously Israel has a large constituency of supporters within the U.S. itself. I mean, 
it, it, it seems like if it's conducive to the to getting that agreement, to sort of getting a, a de facto sign off or at least a, a resignment to the fact that the deal will be made in the interest of diplomacy, it, it seems to be an acceptable strategy. That That's my read on it. Um, but I, have, I understand why Iranians would be upset about that. But I mean, this is a this is the sort of thing where we're trying to, you know, if, if, if people who want this deal to happen are trying to overcome those overcome certain levels of differences in order to come to a mutual understanding. And, and I think that that deals within the, that 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 visit was within that framework. Yes, Ms. Uh, let me, let me basically just add very short that it's Iran's biggest enemy, but it's also U.S.'s closest ally in the region. And then for because of all the points that were mentioned in the past. And also, again, I want to bring in that issue of Iran not directly negotiating with the U.S. That has become um, essentially a point of Iran shooting itself in the foot um, in, in weakening its own hand or position when it comes to the negotiation. But again, um, going back to that point of Israel being U.S.'s closest ally in the region. And a lot of this actually having to do with Israel is because of Israel's security and U.S. concern for Israel that this is all happening. But it's definitely a different approach that the Biden team is taking than the Obama time. Um, yeah, okay. So let's have a view from um, the Iran side. Uh, Ms. Abedin, do you have anything to add in this regard? Uh, hello, thank you for having me. Actually, uh, I was not from uh, the beginning of the session, uh, so I'm not sure uh, how much it discussed about the, uh, the current situation in Vienna. But uh, something I want to add here is that we should not uh, forget that now uh, Iran has taken its political uh, decision and Iran um, I, I, I heard that from, uh, from some close sources that Iran take, has taken the uh, political decision and it's uh, actually uh, we can withdraw from some uh, principles, but now still we cannot see any uh, significant step from the United States. And I myself, uh, from my perspective, I evaluate this uh, issue uh, in, uh, in this regard that this uh, governments, current government, uh, is not really uh, effective. See uh, its weak position um, from a different perspective in Afghanistan, even about Russia, Ukraine, and uh, I see their position, their stance uh, about nuclear uh, nuclear negotiation in. Uh, in this perspective, and um, I cannot see uh, the United States has uh, really determined to uh, take political um, decision because their uh, Congress election and then their presidential election is ahead. And um, I cannot see really a determined uh, government to issue an executive order to do something because now we see um, many pressures, huge pressure from uh, Israeli side and also Republican side. And I'm not really sure that the United States could um, bear this, uh, uh, this significant pressure that they, uh, they face that. Um, yes, uh, Ms. Mortaza, we have... Actually, I hope they do this is my perspective from uh, the current uh, government of the United States. 
Well, I mean, yeah, I'll just, I'll just add. I really appreciate that, that, that take. I think that, that that's that's very, uh, that's very good analysis. I think that um, certainly one of the concerns going into this, and especially in past months, has been um, the Biden administration's vulnerability on uh, both foreign and domestic policy. Of course, a lot of this is based in perceptions. Um, I think, though, at the same time that the Biden administration is eager to get a some sort of victory, um, and I. I think that certainly this this could be sold as such at home. Um, that's not to say it's 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 a done deal, as I had said a couple times before. You know, nothing's agreed until it's agreed, and that's what both the U.S. and Iranian sides have said. So there's you know we I, as as optimistic as people are who want to see this deal done, um, there's still plenty of room for error, and I, I do think that I'm sure there are still some points that have not been worked out. Um, and I mean, yeah, I think at any point things could go wrong. I I I, I had the feeling that there seems to be some sort of in principle um, understanding that a deal could be reached um, and that this is this is the closest they've been so far. Um, and that's based, of course, on the on public statements, mostly, um, as well as some some people we've spoken to. But at the same time, uh, there is, you know, it, it, as I said before, there's certainly no guarantees until that announcement is made. Ms. Mortazavi? I just want to add a point that um, as far as an achievement, I agree with Tom, and this is also a very interesting time because most of the foreign policy or international focus um, is on Ukraine, on the issue of Russia and Ukraine. So in a way that has interestingly distracted from the focus and attention on Iran. If there wasn't a Russia-Ukraine issue right now, there would be absolute focus um, and headlines on the nuclear negotiations. But the Russia-Ukraine issue has sort of pushed that into second position. And that, in essence, lifts some of the pressure, the public pressure and the public eye from the negotiators and gives them more breathing room. Um, And then again, Ironically, I think it's also a convenient time for the Biden administration to get this done and to finalize it. And then for the Iranian side also, as we know, the the, year is, the Iranian year calendar year is about to end uh, in a month. So it would be an achievement for them to also get this done within this Iranian year before the new year, end of March. Um, okay, so let's take some questions and um comments from the audience. I have sent several requests, but uh, unfortunately no one has accepted Ms. Shabani, um, Mr. Vintor, and uh, Ms. Wagan. I have sent many requests to all of you, but uh, unfortunately I have gotten no response. So if anyone wants to speak, just send me a request and yeah, that's it. Um. While we wait, if uh, I yeah. also saw some interesting headlines on Iran and Qatar. I know I don't know Tom if you've been following that, but the Iranian president was just in Qatar in Doha um, after over a decade of a presidential visit, and um, the Emir of Qatar also. They both made announcements that they discussed various issues. We know Qatar has been trying to mediate in the prisoner swap, um, in the prisoner file, and. Uh, the Qatari Emir also said that they discussed the nuclear negotiations. They've made some bilateral agreements. So that was also an interesting development to follow. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I was, yeah. 
please come. No, I was just going to say, I think that, and, I, and of course, a lot of my, my journalism and my reporting has focused on, you know, the broader geopolitics of, of, of West Asia and, uh, and Eurasia as, as, you know, as, as, you do, as these uh, events progress. And I think, especially if you look at the Middle East area, you're, you'll see that there seems to be a trend right now of fatigue uh, over, over conflict, over crises, um, Every country is looking out for its own interests, and there's a lot to be gained by by sort of forging partnerships or at least coming to understandings that 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 avoid having to live in constant uncertainty. Um, and of course, living under sanctions as well. Uh, I think that. Uh, President Icy has certainly made a priority of, of wanting to rebuild some of those bridges with the with, with neighboring countries, and I think that the the JCPOA could be a part of that, especially as 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 uh, as Nigar had said, the the Gulf the the the, the Arab countries of the, of the Gulf uh, of, the, of the Persian Gulf have said um, have, have signaled, I should say, really that they are um, they're willing to uh, to accept this JCPOA in this iteration. I think part of that is because they see Iran as as potentially part of a broader security in the region. I mean, obviously, Iran has a, is a very powerful country, and it's expensive to be an enemy of Iran. So I think that certainly there is a, a movement, and you're seeing Raisi's visit, you're seeing the Saudi talks, uh, conversation with the UAE. I think these are all trending in that direction. And I think in some degree, some degree even Israel um, and their acceptance of the JCPOA is part of that. Uh, yes, uh, Mr. Rintour, welcome. Yes. Please. Uh, thanks. Uh, thank you. I'm not, I didn't intend to speak. I was, I was just hoping to listen. So I just felt it was um, rude not to respond to your request to speak. So I'll, I'll speak very, very briefly. And um, apologies in advance, because it's the nature of my job that I have to think about many things at once. And at the moment, I'm thinking a lot about Ukraine. And when I've been in, I was in Munich at the uh, weekend, and it was to my great frustration that, you know, weren't able to focus more upon what the Iranian foreign minister was saying. But um, just picking up on some of the points we just made earlier, one is I agree that I think that if Israel and um, some of the Gulf states, which are being corralled by the Americans into accepting this agreement, you know, uh, do so, uh, it's going to make it much more difficult for the Republicans to mount a very big and ineffective um, assault on the agreement when and if it's published. Uh, and then the second thing I was going to say was that I was struck by how um, the foreign minister was talking about the legal political um, hurdles that still existed about trying to get some kind of entrenchment of the agreement, some kind of commitment from the Americans that, um, you know, they wouldn't suffer the repeat of what had happened before with the Americans walking out, perhaps a different administration taking a different view of the agreement. And one of the... Um, uh, trying to get a statement from the, I think he was talking about a statement from the Speaker of all the parliaments, so you could easily get those from the French, um, British and German, from the German Bundestag and from the British Parliament, etc. And um, I expect the Americans could do that as well. I, I don't know whether it has any real true value in terms of sort of legal uh, um, force, but... Um, if it is a sort of an aspect of comfort that the Iranians would want, I think that could be achieved. And then it was just very elusive point he made very briefly, and it wasn't followed um, in the question and answer session, but he talked about the need for some kind of economic uh, entrenchment, some kind of guarantee that um, 
if a company has made an agreement once sanctions are lifted, uh, has made a contractual agreement with the, an Iranian company, there would be an understanding or indeed a, a legal understanding that that deal could not be suspended or have sanctions hit upon it. So any deal that's made before, um, say, the Americans withdrew again would be sacrosanct and would be preserved. And that seemed to be quite a kind of clever idea because it would at least allow um, some certainty for people who go ahead with deals now or as soon as the agreement's made and they would have some certainty that um, that contract would be honoured and preserved and it wouldn't be subject to sanctions. I mean it's a very complicated idea about how you would do it but I can see why the Iranians are asking for it. And then very lastly on the issue of um, something I write about quite a lot which is uh, the sort of prisoners and prisoner swaps um, I think there's a kind of it doesn't really matter whether it's part of the agreement per se I think there's an understanding on both sides that there would be a very large scale prison swap um, around and about the time of the agreement um, and I think maybe the Americans are pushing harder for it to be explicitly part of the agreement um, and are worried that the Iranians would sort of wriggle out of it um, but uh, the issue there is that um, I think the Iranians have an interest in trying to get this prisoner swap going, both for reputational reasons and also for um, they, you know, they need to get some people out of um, what they feel is um, unfair imprisonment in America. And there was, an, there was a deal clearly made last summer, and from the information I was given, it sort of really fell apart because of the Americans at the last minute. Um, and there was a quarrel over about one or two of the names that were going to be swapped. So I hope, that, I hope that's helpful, and thank you very much for listening to me, and I look forward to listening to myself more. Uh, thank you, Mr. Ventor. Um, so right now we have um, one more speaker. Uh, so let's uh, go over uh, the points that Mr. Ventor said and hear from our speakers. Ms. I Ms. actually Mortez have a question. So, yeah, yeah, I have a question from Patrick, if I may. Sure, hi. Hi, Patrick. Great to hear from you. And also to my point that there's so much attention now being uh, paid to Ukraine that it has pushed really the Vienna talks to second headlines. But do you, going back to the details of the prisoner swap, because at some point in uh, public um, comments we heard um, about Western prisoners and we know that there's i think i believe four americans one of which is also a british national Muratab, was, um in prison in iran and then there are a couple of a number of british and also other europeans Faibad and Khaf from france and a number of other uh, dual nationals from europe do you have you heard anything about this prisoner swap potentially including all of western prisoners or because we're, i'm also hearing um, talks that it may actually only include the Americans and potentially Nazanin Zaghari, who's a British-Iranian dual national. But do you have any insight into the rest of the Western prisoners or the dual nationals in Iran, namely the Europeans? Well, I certainly think the British wouldn't be happy with only uh, Nazanin being um, released. And also there wouldn't necessarily be a, a, an argument for that because she's already been found... Um, guilty of a second offence so uh, I think they, I think the British would insist that they are all released and I think the French and the Germans who are signatories to the agreement have equal sort of 
purchase and uh, would be as equally insistent. Uh, the only danger is you end up with the um, European Western side having so many people that they want released and there aren't enough uh, Iranians to swap back, as it were. And that, that is one of the difficulties. If, if it's going to be on a sort of like-for-like basis, one-for-one, one, uh, there are more Westerners in Iranian jails than there are the other way around. Uh, so that would be difficult. Thanks, Patrick. I also uh, wanted to talk about the point that Patrick made about um, the discussions on essentially that big question of guarantees. And again, going back to the original talk, this is very much a focus, at least from the Iranian viewpoint, on Iran and Europe trade and how the Iranians basically feel like they were burned the last time as far as their mm -hmm. expectations of the JCPOA and what happened after the sanctions were lifted and then the talk of a return to uh, or, or a, a ripping of the deal started in the U.S. presidential campaign. We're sort of in the same um, time timeline right now, even though this is a little earlier. So Joe Biden will have a longer part of his term um, to to culminate this uh, revival of the JCPOA, but I think it's something that the Iranians now are trying to be um, more assertive about with that past experience that they had specifically looking to trade and investment from Europe. Sure. I mean, there's, well, there's three years left of his administration, but I mean, you, you, there's going to be a process. I've got to get the agreement. And then is there an executive order? Is there, there will be a contest about whether this has to go through Senate in any form or other and then how many votes there would have to be. Um, and just in the nature of this, lifting sanctions is not something that's done overnight, nor do businesses strike deals with other um, companies overnight. I mean, I know there are now trade delegations starting to go out from Europe in the expectation that there will be a lifting of sanctions. So people are presumably discussing what contracts they can get themselves involved with. but. I, I don't think one's going to see a lot of benefit for this for at least a year. Um, so there would probably be two years of trading before, say, the Republicans won and the whole thing was torn up again. But um, that's why I think there has to be some kind of mechanism whereby the deals that are done prior to sanctions being reimposed are uh, preserved and are legally um, protected. Um, okay, so Tom, do you have anything to add uh, to what, what just Patrick said and what just uh, Ms. Mortazabi said? Um, no, not, not much. I think a lot of what we discussed is, is still applicable here. I, I do totally agree that there is some sort of understanding, um, tacit probably about the the about, about prisoners as far as that being not a direct part of the JCPOA itself, but of course uh, somewhat in parallel with the with the discussions. Um, I don't think there'll be any official connection. There'll probably be official denials that it was part of those uh, that part of that or hinge, I should say, on the JCPOA. Uh, but I, yeah, I do see. 
see uh, uh, room there for potential uh, movement. And on the and then when it comes to the uh, the assurances, as I said before, I, I think that Patrick put it even in, in greater detail than I did, um, talking about creative ways that could be implemented um, in order to sort of uh, guard uh, uh, a future U.S. exit and sort of sanctions that would be triggered by that. I still think it's very much a concern just because of the influence the U.S. has in the world financial network. And, if, and the uh, if the U.S. was going to leave in the future, I'm sure it would try to do as much damage as possible. But I do think this is something that has been sort of factored in by the Europeans um, and wanting to sort of see this be a, a lasting agreement and not wanting to have to go through this again um, based on the, the great frustration they experienced after the U.S. exit. Um, I think that certainly there there is movement to make those mechanisms happen. But to the specifics as to how exactly they will happen, I, 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 I'm interested to see. I wish I had more information on them, but I'm sure that there's there are creative ways to 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 do that, or at least to to try to do that. Thank you, uh, Mr. Winter. Do you want to respond? Uh, no, I've, I've got to go in a minute. Um, uh, I just um, I just think I don't think it's quite clear yet whether this whole thing's going to happen. Which is what a uh, this is an assumption because people are talking about hours and days which the problem is they've been saying we're hours and days away from um an agreement for virtually two months so and i think there are some real stumbling blocks right at the end so um and just as we're always appearing you know the, the russians are about to invade ukraine <laughs> we're always about to have an agreement and uh, i think i think you know ju judging by that kind of note that came out from the iranian parliamentarians th those are quite those are quite strict conditions and they are going to take a lot of um, swallowing by the Americans. But I think there's a real desire on the American side to try to get an agreement. Um, I think it would be regarded, despite the internal difficulties that would be in Congress, as, as a real step forward from the American point of view. Uh, and it you know, has a real transformatory um, uh, possibilities, given what else is happening in, in the Gulf and the new kinds of relationships that are being Born. I mean, the, the the seeds that could from this so I could you know spread really far and wide. So I think the Americans are very keen to do it. I, I've got to go now, and I would really, really appreciate you. I did, as I said, didn't intend to speak, and thank you so much for letting me do so. Thank you, Patrick. It was lovely to have you here. Uh, okay. Let's hear from Jan, Mr. Kordovsky. Yeah, hello. Yes, this is Anne from Prague. Uh, thank you for a very interesting hour and a half of uh, full of information. I, I have just a quick question. In case the U.S. leaves the deal which hasn't happened yet, who in the who in Iran is going to take the political blame for it? Is it going to be the prime minister? Is it going to be the foreign minister? Or who is it going to be? Thank you. Uh, Ms. Mortazavi, do you want to respond to that? Sorry, I couldn't hear Jan um clearly did you hear the question oh yeah in, in case of a withdrawal from the united states side who is who from iran will take the responsibility for it a withdrawal from the negotiations uh no, no from I the think... final deal if it manages to close If a deal, if the negotiations fail or succeed, Sorry, on, uh, if a deal is reached. Oh, if it's reached, um, and, then a, and then an exit happens from the U.S. again. 
Oh, from a future administration? Yeah, I, 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 yeah. I see, I see. Okay, um, I think I understand. You're talking about Iran's domestic politics, essentially the last time the Rouhani administration and the foreign minister Zarif were very much criticized by the conservatives or hardliners who are opposed to the negotiations on the to the final deal. Um, and they sort of tried to blame them for Donald Trump's withdrawal. I think there is a difference in dynamic this time. It's the conservatives or essentially the deal critics themselves um, who are reviving it. So it, the, uh, the, and we, we're not seeing that kind of opposition from the other side. We're not seeing the previous president or the foreign minister being vocal uh, pushing back against the process of this new administration. In fact, I've seen a few supportive comments from the previous foreign ministers. I've, so I don't think we're going to see that kind of dynamic. Um, and, um, you know, essentially it will be more of an internal conservative camp discussion rather than the, the full-on opposing factions um, that, that we saw the last time around. And, and just to jump on that real quick, I think that in this case, the blame and the blame was already largely on the Trump administration last time. Of course, in Iran, there was considerable backlash as well. But this time around, I think that even among European allies, uh, obviously China and Russia, too, the, the, the U.S. would just it would be just such a step back that I think that Iran would look like I mean, they, they, they would really be able to say, look, we, we've already negotiated this twice. We in, in good faith. And I think that really there wouldn't be the same uh, opening there for um, internal criticism. Of course, there, there could be some degree, but I think there will be a clear uh, a clear villain in that case for, for people who support the JCPOA, um, including U.S. partners and allies that would only further uh, marginalize uh, you the U.S. influence and in the U.S. position. Exactly. Ted Cruz and Bob Menendez will be very happy if a withdrawal happens, right? I mean, I mean, they, 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 perhaps they would be happy, but they, they would, they would probably be not very happy to hear the the comments that come against the U.S. from across the globe. I think that um, even it, to to have to have gotten this far, to have even gotten um, the 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 Arab monarchies uh, of the Arabian Peninsula, to have gotten Israel to some degree, and, and then for the U.S. to then walk away again, I, I think it would just really be uh, quite an isolating move. And I think that. Um, Sure, if, if 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 that's if that's such an important issue to them, they can claim a victory then. But I think that the the broader effects of that, um, you know, part of this whole reason of wanting to get back in the JCPOA is to reclaim some of that geopolitical capital that the U.S. has lost in recent years. And I think that a, a further backslide would be would be quite devastating for for the U.S. position on the world stage. I um I also just want to add a point to what Tom said that. It wasn't just any Republican that pulled out of the deal. It was Donald Trump, who was a, a unique kind of Republican. Um, and at some point before the actual pullout, because Donald Trump was threatening to pull out of the JCPOA, but he didn't make it happen until uh, mid-2018, so about a year and a half into his administration, there were these periodical reviews where the president essentially sends it um, for uh, for review to the Congress, and then the uh, Congress will send it back to the president. So at some point before the actual pullout by the president, uh, the Republican Congress back then had the chance 
um, of of basically sabotaging the deal or or unraveling it, and they didn't do that. It, it the Mitch McConnell uh, didn't even bring it for a vote in the in a Republican controlled U.S. Senate, so it wasn't a kind of thing that any Republican wanted to take responsibility for. And then essentially, uh, President Trump, ex President Trump, uh, did it in 2018. So that also depending on. One, if a Republican wins in 2024, and that's not a given, there's also a high chance that Joe Biden might uh, be reelected or another Democrat. And also, if a Republican is elected, what kind of a Republican? Is it someone to the far right of the Republican Party, someone as bold and unique as Donald Trump, or is it someone uh, more to the center of the party? And these are all, uh, you know, the unknowns and ifs that are going to change the dynamics. So it's not a given um, that in 2014, the deal will completely unravel if a Republican wins. But, uh, Ms. Mortazavi, do you think that uh, Trump 2024 is unlikely to happen with Trump campaigning so heavily and uh, Pompeo being on his side and uh, Biden's approval rating going down to 41 percent? Uh, isn't that a very likely situation that Trump 2024 happens again, a mag of 2.0, if you will? I mean, <laughs> I'll defer to to Tom for that. That's more of a domestic uh, U.S. question, and also there's still so many unknowns. Yes, it's possible. There's there's a chance. There's a possibility. I wouldn't rule it out. But we still have to wait for the U.S. midterm elections in Congress, and also as we get closer to the actual election, um, see how things unfold. It's 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 not a no, and it's not a definite yes. But I'm curious to hear what Tom thinks. Well, you might be disappointed. I'm a, I'm a foreign policy guy. Uh, I obviously I follow these issues, um, and I, I have been following because it does have broad consequences for international affairs and U.S. foreign policy. But I mean, the only thing I can offer to that is uh, is <laughs> never say never. We learned that in in, in back uh, in 2016. We learned that in 2020 in other ways, and I think that certainly we it's something we can't rule out. But uh, it's yeah, we we shouldn't resign ourselves to that. That that's certainly a possibility that that's certainly a, a likelihood or or a, or a done deal i think that you know we have to let the u.s uh, domestic political situation play out um i think that yes the republicans are, are having a, a lot of fun taking pot shots at the biden administration but um if this deal does go through as much as that sure there'll be there'll be plenty of criticism on that as well there could be room for the biden administration to, to sell a, a foreign policy when one that it, it desperately needs um, okay, so Ms. Abedini, what do you think the response would be from the Iran side if um, a Republican president pulls out of the deal in a, a, a possible deal in 2024? Actually, already, I think, uh, as I said before, as I said before, I cannot really uh, make a separation or differentiation between the government of uh, Joe Biden with a Republican government because um, as much as a Republican president would uh, try to withdraw from the possible deal, uh, I suppose Joe Biden could not implement the, the good deal. So uh, I, I really don't think that uh, a significant difference between uh, what what happening uh, 2024, but um, and just I want to uh, add something about uh, 
Israeli delegation presence in uh, Vienna, I I just want to add something that we have to uh, evaluate this issue in this context that uh, I think uh, two days ago, uh, Benny Gantz has a discussion with Kamala Harris and said uh, yeah, Atomic Energy Agency has to uh, fully in, uh, make fully enforcement in uh, any possible deal. And I think it's so funny thing because um, uh, Israel is uh, only a uh, place in the Middle East that has nuclear arsenal but is not part of NPT. Uh, so uh, I think we have to uh, we have to uh, evaluate the Israeli pressures that uh, it, it is taken on the U.S. Uh, and the U.S. government uh, in this framework that they try to again make uh, IAEA as a political actor, not just a technical actor. Uh, so uh, uh, when I wrap uh, wrap it up uh, all and uh, uh, think about all of these issues, uh, I think again we see uh, Atomic Energy Agency is trying to be a a political actor, not a technical actor. So, um, again, I, I'm not sure that how much the United States government can uh, bear this pressure from um, Israel and also from atomic agency. Um, so, Olianov said uh, that as well, that uh, in the meeting with the Israeli delegation, they didn't discuss JCPOA, but this, they discussed IAEA-related topics. So, that's uh, a very strong signal that if of course it was about the Vienna talks, what do you think, Ms. Mortazavi, Tom? You want to get on that Nigar first, and I'll, I'll hop on next because just to follow up. Uh, can you repeat the question? Sorry. Um, no, uh, what I just said was that uh, Mikhail Olyanov tweeted after his meeting with the uh, Israeli delegation that they didn't discuss the JCPOA, they just discussed IAEA-related talks. But that's a strong signal that they talked about the JCPOA. Isn't that so? And um, what Ms. Abedini said was that uh, Israel is trying to activate the presence of IAEA in the talks uh, as a political actor, not a technical actor. You know, essentially this brings us back to that big picture or the question of how much the Biden administration, specifically the American side, is involving the Israelis who are their closest ally, but also their biggest critic when it comes to negotiations with Iran. And um, again, I think the dynamic has worked to some extent. And we, and because of these other um, uh, circumstances that we talked about, the Trump pullout, the, the post-withdrawal, uh, uh, era and also a change of administration in Israel. But I think um, the fact that we're not seeing that kind of public opposition and the attempt to sabotage diplomacy is the most important point from a U.S. perspective. And if this deal goes through, maybe not with full-on political support with Israel, but at least with minimal or less reduced opposition, uh, it's a big gain for the Biden administration because we also know that here in Washington, in U.S. Congress, also a lot of opposition to diplomacy with Iran goes back 
to the issue of Israel and uh, and the opposition is not just a domestic issue from Republicans. So, um, you know, I look at it from big picture, of course, Iran and Israel, that dynamic in the region, and also with the Arab monarchies, the Abraham Accords, a lot of things have changed from the Obama time. Um, but at the end of the day, I think what's, what's most important to focus on is whether this deal goes through. And again, as Patrick also uh, very well explained, it's still not 100%. It's not a definite. We don't have a deal yet. But I'm, I'm optimistic. And I think with considering all of this dynamic, um, if, if this agreement happens soon, it will be beneficial for all sides. That was another conversation about U.S.-Iran nuclear diplomacy and the nuclear negotiations happening in Vienna and the future of the nuclear deal. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Iran podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Twitter at Iran podcast. If you want to join our Twitter spaces in the future live, you can follow me on Twitter at Negar Mortazavi and you'll be notified about our Twitter spaces in the future. We're trying to hold them regularly. You can also support the Iran podcast by going to anchor.fm slash the Iran podcast and clicking on subscribe to be a paid subscriber of the podcast and to support our work. The Iran podcast is produced by Joshua Barlow and our theme music is by 127 Band. Thank you for listening and until next time, goodbye.